Well, good morning to all of you on this very, very beautiful day. Uh, to all of you courageous people who have boldly gone where only Canadians will go. And that is to church on a Sunday morning in a blizzard. So we do greet you at, here at Central Campus and also those of you who um, are tuning in from one of our regional campuses, whether in Airdrie, Bridgeland, or the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary. We also want to welcome those of you who are tuning in online, those of you wimps who decided to stay home <laughs> and uh, in the comfort of your living room and watch this. Um, I'm just kidding. We really do love you and uh, we're glad you're with us and uh, trusting that you'll be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Um, as we get into God's Word together. When I was just a little guy, I can recall us kids trying to increase our credibility in the eyes of our friends by saying something like, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now, when we said that, we were indicating that we were mighty serious about what we were committing ourselves to. I mean, stick a needle in my eye. I mean, that is serious business for a kid. Uh, it's serious business, really, for anybody. Um, now, I don't know who dreamed this up, but uh, there was a way to escape a cross-your-heart oath without any repercussions. Remember what it was? Yeah, you just had to cross your fingers behind your back. That used to really bug me because someone would commit to doing something and then when the moment of truth arrived they'd say oh sorry I had my fingers crossed behind my back unfortunately this finger crossing practice didn't end at childhood it moved its way into adolescence and then into adulthood and unfortunately there are a significant number of people today who seem to have their fingers crossed a lot in my late teens, I worked as a foreman in my dad's construction firm. I can still remember pleading with a drywaller that we really needed him to show up on Monday morning and finish the work that he had started weeks before and then had abandoned for a period of time because the wood finishers were coming in on Wednesday to hang doors and the window casings. It was important that his work get done first. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, Henry, I swear on my mother's grave... I'll be there Monday morning. You have my word. Well, Monday came and went. So did Tuesday. So did Wednesday. He finally showed up on Thursday. His word didn't mean much. And swearing on his mother's grave didn't seem to change anything. Whether it's famous athletes like Lance Armstrong and Tiger Woods whether it's corporate and bank CEOs or, or politicians and government officials or whether it's church leaders, everywhere you look today, it seems deceit is rampant. William Backus, a Christian psychologist, in his book, Telling Ourselves the Truth, he cites research, and I'm not making this up, that indicates after some very in-depth study that the average person lies around 200 times a day. That's mind-boggling to me. Now, of course, some of those, um, they indicated, are little white lies that we sometimes don't even know how to avoid, like when a wife turns to her husband and says, so does this dress make me look fat? 
So, you know, you can understand some of those tough situations we find ourselves in from time to time. But overall, most of our lies are just that. They're lies. Another research study a few years back asked people under what circumstances it was okay to lie. The conclusions were astonishing. 20% said making more money is enough justification to lie. 25% said lying to make yourself look better is okay. 30% said it's okay to lie on your application, your job application. 46% said they knew of a friend who cheated on a spouse. And 60% said it's okay to lie to save yourself embarrassment. I mean, is it any wonder why trust in general is unraveling in our culture like a cheap sweater? So let me ask you, how good is your word? How consistently do you tell the truth? I mean, if you don't tell the truth all of the time, you have a problem with integrity. I mean, what if your spouse said to you, I'm going to be faithful to you six out of seven days a week? How secure would you feel in that relationship? No, a spouse who isn't faithful all the time isn't faithful at all. Well, here in our scripture lesson, Jesus says that those who are part of his kingdom are promise keepers, they're covenant keepers, and are so truth-filled that they are truthful in their relationships. Can you imagine living in a society where people make commitments and actually keep them? Can you imagine living in a society where people live their lives with such integrity that you can trust their word without having them sign a truckload of legal documents? Well, this is what God had in mind in the beginning. And this is also what Jesus has in mind when he talks about his new kingdom. In Jesus' day, like today, deception was running rampant. People were really abusing God's original intent behind the oaths and the vows in that day. And so he addresses this deception in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 33 to 37. Just keep it open in front of you. Um, but I also want you to join me now in reading this passage together. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me uh, as we do so. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would shed insight on the words of Jesus here, that we would understand them, and, Lord, that you would give us uh, a soft heart to receive whatever your Spirit wants us to receive, and then the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now, in the passage that we just read together, I want you to notice in particular Jesus' words where he says, but I tell you, do not swear at all. Now, the word swear, of course, isn't referring to profanity. It's referring to taking a vow or an oath. He says, do not swear at all. Now, people read that and ask, is Jesus saying it's wrong to take oaths at any time? For instance, is he forbidding us to take the witness stand in a court of law, put our hand on a Bible, and promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God? Well, some groups like the Quakers and the Jehovah Witnesses believe that this is what Christ meant, and they will not take oaths under any circumstances. Well, it's doubtful that Jesus was forbidding us to take oaths for a couple of reasons. One is the context, which we'll look at in a moment, but also because oaths or vows or covenants were a regular practice in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, Numbers uh, chapter 30 verse 2 assumes the use of vows when it says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. There are numerous uh, passages like this in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus was put under oath by the high priest who said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if Jesus would have said never take, to take oaths at all, he could have been mute at this point, but he wasn't. He responded to the high priest's question and said in verse 64, yes, it is as you say. As the Apostle Paul frequently put himself also on oath, appealing to God as his witness in order to be believed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, uh, he writes, I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. So given that vows were permitted down through biblical history, we can conclude that Jesus was not speaking against the taking of meaningful vows here in Matthew 5.33. Rather, he was confronting the way the vow-making system had been corrupted. You see, in the beginning, God's original plan did not include the need to take any kind of vow. In the same way that God's original design for marriage did not include the need for divorce or, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, the bill of divorcement. It was man's hardened heart. It was man's sin. It was man's rebellion that led to the breakdown of marriage. And even though God hates divorce and the pain it brings to those who are affected by it, God permitted divorce. In the same way, ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden, we are not naturally faithful. We are not 
naturally honest in our dealings. We are not naturally truthful in our speech. We don't naturally trust one another. If we did, we wouldn't need oaths or legal documents or any of the other stuff we do. But you see, we aren't naturally faithful. And so in the same way that God permitted divorce and permitted Moses to institute a bill of divorcement to bring some order to a situation that was getting out of control, he also allowed his people to make oaths, to use his holy name as a kind of seal on very important commitments so that trust could be reestablished between people. Making vows was never to be done lightly, nor was it to be done frequently. The whole intent of the making of vows was to control man's inclination to lie, to be untruthful, either to God or to man. In the same way that Moses' concession on divorce was designed to control divorce from getting out of hand. Now, human nature being what it is, people soon began to look for some flexibility in the vows that they were taking. You see it in every dimension of life. We're prone that way as human beings. They, we just want a little bit of wiggle room. And so they began to advocate for semi-binding commitments, commitments that had they had every intention of keeping, but, you know, things change People change, circumstances change. And so they decided to change the way that they made their oaths. They found a loophole in the words of Leviticus 19 verse 12, in which God says this, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. Notice the words, by my name. Now, the religious leaders of that day interpreted this to mean that if you took a vow in God's name, you had to keep the vow because God became a partner in the transaction. However, if you took a vow by any other name, then God had nothing to do with the transaction. And guess what? Your vow could be broken without any significant consequence. You know, we saw this played out in our home years ago when our boys still uh, lived with us. As you can well imagine, there were times when they tried to keep the truth from me. And sometimes it was just to fool me into believing that something terrible had happened when in fact it hadn't. Like, you know, they, they got a speeding ticket or they were in an accident or they were expelled from school. And so they would, you know, basically tell me this lie, and I would say, is that true? And they had this very lo serious look on their face, and they would nod affirmatively, or they would even say, yeah, it is. But if I asked them, is that the truth before the living God, things changed dramatically. Because they knew that I was serious because I had just invited God into the conversation who knows all things and who judges what we do. 
And of course, without fail, they told me the whole truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> In fact, when I would say, is that the truth before the living God? They'd go, oh, every time. I guess I'm going to have to tell you now. Well, the same kind of games were played back in the days of Jesus as people found these creative ways to evade the truth. If you wanted a loophole, all you had to do was be crafty in the way that you used your words. And they began to rate the seriousness of the vows that they were taking. If a vow was by heaven... Well, that was a level two oath. If it was by earth, well, earth is further away from God than heaven. That's a level three oath. Now, when you think about it, it just sounds silly, doesn't it? And yet, folks, we're doing the same thing today. It may look differently, but we're still finding ways to fudge on our word to allow wiggle room. I'll never forget being at a wedding where a couple took vows that had so many loopholes in them that, that, that they may as well not have taken any vows at all. One line that really stood out to me was, I promise to love you until my love ends. <laughs> Isn't that reassuring? Now, dear, will that be tomorrow? I mean, another example of semi-binding commitments that have this flexibility factor built in is couples who decide that marriage is too restrictive and unnecessary and instead commit, make kind of a semi-binding commitment to live together. Now, I spelled out what the Bible has to say about that a couple of weeks ago. But here's what the scientific research has to say about that. You see, Dr. Nancy Moore Clatworthy, professor of sociology at Ohio State University, was convinced that living together was actually better than being married. Trouble is, she didn't have any proof for that, so she set out to actually prove it. And she conducted a, a scientific research study. And based on her research, she was shocked to discover that living together without marriage was one of the worst things that a couple could do. Live-in couples argued more on most matters than married couples did, and they were far more dissatisfied with their relationship than married couples were. And the major reason for that is that people who live together without the commitment of marriage view the relationship as one which is always temporary and as a result they can never fully trust each other or fully give themselves to each other I mean why should I give myself to you if tomorrow you can walk right out of this relationship without any consequences why should I trust you with my most intimate self if I don't know whether you'll still love me and stay with me once you know the real me. But you see, these are some of the modern examples of how we make these semi-binding commitments to each other with loopholes or flexibility factor built into them. And of course, we reap the results of doing so. 
Well, as a result in Jesus' day, like today, the whole oath-making system became a deceit-filled fiasco. And it is this which Jesus was speaking against here in Matthew 5.33. Instead of helping people keep their commitments, the vows that... uh, these vows that they were taking actually became loopholes that allowed people to break their covenant. It was glorified finger crossing was all that it really was. So Jesus confronts them saying, you may think that by not including God in your vows and, and instead swearing by heaven or by earth or by the temple or by Jerusalem, that God isn't involved in those transactions. You're you're only kidding yourself because God is everywhere. You can't avoid God. He sees it all, including the state of your heart. You may fool other people, but you can't fool God. Regardless of what games you play or how many fingers You cross behind your back. God is part of every transaction, every word, every thought that occurs. You see, life cannot be divided into, you know, nice little compartments. Kind of into the secular and into the sacred. Where you have one kind of language at work and another kind of language at home. Or you have one code of ethics and conduct at work and another one at home. God is everywhere, and we are accountable for our attitudes, our words, our promises, regardless of how much we may try to rationalize. In verse 37, Jesus basically sums it all up by saying, stop the lying and stop the deceit. Stop the game playing and honor the majesty and the holiness of the Lord your God by being covenant-keeping, truth-telling people. Let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. So what does yes mean? It means I'll do it. I'll be there. You can bank on it. Yes means I'll have it done when I said I'd have it done. Yes means if you commit to doing something, you'll do it. Yes means if you say you'll pay it back, then you're going to pay it back. Yes means yes. What does no mean in the vocabulary of the truth teller? No means exactly that. No. It means I can't do it. It means I won't be there. Count me out. Jesus says, that's how I want you to make commitments to each other. So what does it mean for us practically on a day-to-day basis? I want to focus on two major areas that we're prone not to keep our word in, prone to fudge. The first area is the promises that we make in everyday conversations. For example, how about the everyday promises we make with our friends? I'll call you. Let's do lunch. I'll pray for you. Just let me know how I can help in any way. I'll be here for you. Now, I'm sure that some of you are thinking, oh, come on, those are just you know, innocent interchanges. No one takes them seriously. Well, friends, God takes them seriously. And so do many people. 
Over the years, I've caught myself more than once failing in this area. And so I've had to build some safeguards into my life. Before saying these kind of commitments, I stop and I ask myself, am I really going to live up to this? What am I going to do to ensure that, that I don't forget to follow through on this? If someone, for example, asks if I will pray for them, and unless I'm in a real rush, I will often just pray with them right then and there. Or right after I get off the phone with them. Because few things bother me more than to have someone thank me for praying for them and then to realize that I didn't pray for them. If someone asks to see me or suggests that we get together, which happens dozens of times on a typical weekend like this, I have them call my assistant to ensure that it's not forgotten. Because by the time I finish here and by the time I get to my office and all the conversations I have in between, the chances are really high I'm going to forget most of them. And then there are the everyday promises we make with our spouse. You know, we'll just have to go away for a few days, just the two of us, honey. As soon as I finish this project... I'm just going to have lots of time for us. I'll fix that appliance this week, hon. I won't have another drink, I promise, hon. And then there are the everyday promises we make to our children. I'll come to your games this year, son. Hey, we're going to go fishing this month, son. You can count on it. We'll play catch tomorrow, daughter. Hey, we're going to go out for your birthday, just the two of us together, this week, daughter. Do we really intend to keep those kind of commitments? Or do we have our fingers crossed? Young people, what about the everyday promises we make to our parents? When we promise our parents that they can expect a certain behavior from us, are we true to our word? Or do we say we're going to a youth event or we're going to a friend's place and we actually do for a few moments and then we go out the back door and we head off to a party that our parents know nothing about? Do we promise God that we will serve him with all of our hearts on church on Sunday and then act like we don't even know God with our peers on Monday at school? Friends, be careful about everyday conversational commitments that you make. Better not make them than to make them and then break them. Wouldn't we all rather have people tell us truthful things that might disappoint us from time to time than have someone lead us down the garden path and then dash our expectations? I don't mind if someone says, you know, Henry, I, I can't really get engaged with that minister. I can't help with that initiative, especially if I know that these people are already knee-deep serving the Lord in some way in their lives. It is disappointing when someone says that they're a Christ follower and yet they repeatedly say no to engaging in any kind of ministry for Christ because of their lives are consumed with lesser temporary things or, or just simply because they don't want serving Jesus to interfere with 
with their personal plans or with their vacation schedule. I mean, that concerns me. I, I wonder where people are at in their walk with God. It concerns me, but not nearly as much as a person who eagerly says, I'm in, I'll be there, I'll serve, and then doesn't show, or comes once and then packs it in. They apparently had their fingers crossed. You know, friends, God is truth, and he expects his children to be truth speakers and truth keepers. And in everyday casual conversations, he says, if you mean it, say yes, and then follow through. If you're not going to do it, then in a very gracious way, say no. And that's the end of it. A second area that we are prone not to keep our word is the formal vows that we make. Now, as I pointed out earlier, the Bible affirms the usefulness of making formal vows. But before you make them, the scriptures tell us to remember, to be serious about them. Saul says in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. And so I'm wondering, how are you doing with the more formal vows that you've made? How are you doing keeping your marriage vows? With God's help, are you loving, treasuring, cherishing, encouraging, and helping your spouse be all that God created him or her to be? Are you delighting in her? Are you being faithful to him? Are you being honest with her? Are you putting his needs before your own? For better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health, death parts you. In his book, The Mystery of Marriage, Mike Mason says, it's not love that keeps a marriage together. It's the marriage vows that do. He says, we tend to break our promises. And so we come together before God and his people on our wedding day. And we anticipate the worst that life might throw at us. And we say, no matter what comes, I will remain faithful to you. For better or worse, for fat or thin, for hunky or chunky, for patient or impatient, for passive or aggressive... Whatever it is, I'm staying faithful. Mason says, it's not the man who keeps the vows. The vow is bigger than me. I don't keep the vow. The vow keeps me. And when I'm tempted to throw in the towel, the vow says to me, wait a minute. You said you're going to keep on going no matter what. And the vow keeps me on track. It's a good word, Mike. Good word. So again, how faithfully are we keeping the marriage vows? 
And again, it's not just about being faithful, as important as that is. Are we investing in our marriage to make it all that God wants it to be? That's part of our vows. Parents, remember the vows you took the day you joined together with family and close friends and dedicated your child to the Lord? How faithfully are you keeping those dedication vows? Do you tell your children through your words, your actions, and your attitudes that you love them, that you're proud of them? And I'm not just talking about school children, age, uh, school age children. I'm talking about your adult children. Do you spend quality time with them and give them your undivided attention? Are you living a life of full surrender to Jesus as you promised you would as an example to them? Are you setting before them an example of a godly life in your words and your actions, in your giving and in your serving? Are you seeking to introduce them to Jesus, this Jesus that you know and love as you said you would? Are you teaching and training your children in the ways of the Lord? Are you daily reading the scriptures together, praying together, worshiping together as a family, not just during times like this, but in your home? And then there are the commitments you've made in your workplace. Commitments to give a full day's work for a full day's pay. Commitments to be honest in your expense account and the use of your company's property. Commitments to follow through on what you promised or said that you would do. Commitments to treat customers with grace and to go the extra mile as if you were the owner of the company. You know, friends, God is the author of truth. And he is constantly trying to put things together toward that end. Whereas Satan is constantly trying to tear things apart. And every time we communicate falsely, every time we're not faithful to our word, someone gets hurt. Relationships are torn apart. Here in his sermon, Jesus is calling us to join him in his mission to bring all people back to himself and into his new kingdom by being People of our word. People who live such lives of honesty and integrity that we rarely, if ever, have to back up our words with words like, I swear to God that I'll do it. Or words like, may lightning strike me dead if I'm lying. May we just live lives where people just say, wow, that guy is trustworthy. Lee Strobel gives an example of what that looks like. He tells the story of a seven-year-old um, little league player named Tanner who lives in Florida, whose truth-telling landed him on the pages of Sports Illustrated several years ago. Tanner was playing first base when the ball was hit to him. And he reached out to tag the base runner as the runner ran by him on, in first base and headed for second. The umpire said, you're out. But Tanner said to the ump, excuse me, sir, but uh, I missed him with the tag. 
And the umpire said, well, what do you mean you missed him? And the boy said, well, I tried, but I didn't tag him. The umpire couldn't believe it. But he said, well, okay, if you say so. And he reversed the ruling, and he called the player safe. Now, folks, can you imagine a major league baseball player doing something like that? Can you imagine an NHL hockey player doing something like that? I mean, can you imagine or can you see Sidney Crosby or Taylor Hall tapping a ref on the shoulder and saying, you know, you missed it about 20 seconds ago, but I deliberately tripped Jerome Aginla, cost the Flames a goal, so you really should call that goal back and put me in the penalty box. Can you imagine that ever happening? Maybe. But based upon everything I've seen so far, probably not. But here was a seven-year-old fellow who was true to his word. That's not the end of the story. Here's what happened next. Two weeks later, Tanner was playing shortstop in another game when the ball was hit to him and he went to tag another player. The same umpire was there and called the player safe. But then he sensed that something was troubling Tanner, so he went over to him and he asked him what was wrong, and Tanner said, I'm sorry, sir, but I tagged him. And guess what the umpire did? He reversed his decision. He called the player out. Of course, the opposing team manager came storming out of the pit, um, you know, in protest. But the umpire told him about how Tanner had been truthful in that earlier event. In effect, the umpire said, you know, this boy has shown me that he's a truth teller. If he says a runner is out, he's out. That's what Jesus wants the people who are part of his kingdom to be known as. People who are as good as their word. Truth tellers, promise keepers, people who stand out like a neon light in a world that's filled with deceit, deception, and dishonesty. But you see, all of that begins in the heart. That's the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount. What's going on in our heart. The Bible says that my words are a reflection of my heart. Proverbs 16.23 says, A wise man's heart guides his mouth. Oh yes, we can all fake it for a period of time. But eventually in those unguarded moments, what comes out of my mouth reveals my character and the state of my heart. When I lose my temper, when I overreact to criticism, when I say something in an unloving way, when I break a promise, when I don't follow through on a commitment that I've made, I may try to convince myself and others that that isn't me. But the truth is, it is me. It's a reflection of the state of my heart and also a reflection of whom I'm trusting in that moment in time. The problem is not my tongue. It's my heart. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
If our heart is truly surrendered to Jesus, our word will be true and right. Our commitments, our mission in life, our values in life will be in line with those of Jesus. And our heart will break over the things that break the heart of God. And so what do we need to do on a regular basis is this. And that is to ask the Holy Spirit of God to examine our heart. That's really what Jesus is doing here in his Sermon on the Mount. It's as if he's holding up this big mirror. And he's having us have an honest look. Not so much at our external behavior, but to have an honest look at the state of our heart. If we don't like what we see, we need to humble ourselves. We need to admit that something is wrong inside. And we need to repent. We need to admit our sin and our need for God's help, not only to forgive us, but to make us into his image. And when we ask him to do so in faith, Jesus will not only invade our lives, but he will begin to transform us from the inside out by living his life of love and joy and peace through us. But that's going to require that we keep trusting him. That's going to require that we keep seeking to please him alone. So how can we know when we're not trusting the Lord? How can we know when our focus has shifted from pleasing God to pleasing others? Well, when we find ourselves competing, when we find ourselves comparing, when we find ourselves slandering other people or gossiping or manipulating or controlling or lying or exaggerating, we can know that we've stopped trusting and we're into the realm of trying to do it in our own strength. We can know that our focus has shifted from pleasing God to pleasing other people and trying to win the applause of other people. And so my question in closing is, when it comes to this matter of truth-telling and keeping your word, are you trying or are you trusting? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 challenges us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And as we do, as we surrender our lives to Jesus and make him the object of our highest affection, we'll know Jesus and begin to think like Jesus. And the more we know and think like Jesus, the more his words, his character, his life will be lived through us. You know, when I think about the vows, I'm reminded that our God is not only a covenant-making God, but also a covenant-keeping God. He doesn't remain commitment-free. No, he says, you can mock me, you can spin on your heels and walk away from me, you can thumb your nose at me, and you can curse my name, but I'm going on record to say that I love you and I will keep loving you, whether you love me back or not. My hands are outstretched to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a promise that you can count on. 
When you encounter stormy seas or walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I promise you, says the Lord, you will never walk alone because I will never leave you or forsake you. You can bank on it. And I promise that if you remain in me, I will will bear much fruit through you. I will make a difference in the world through you. I will touch the lives of others through you. I will change the trajectory of people's eternity through you. That's a promise if you remain in me. And when you die, I promise I'll take you home forever to be with me. Where there will be no more pain or sorrow or evil or tears. And friends, on the authority of God's word, that's the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let's stand for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for not being a commitment-free God but for being a covenant-keeping God. You see each of our hearts and you see what's true in us and you see what's false. You know the lies that we live. Lord, we want to be truth speakers. We want to be covenant keepers. And so we ask for your forgiveness for our hypocrisy, our dishonesty, our lying, our shallow commitments to you and to others. Lord, I ask that you would bring healing to all those lives, those relationships that have been hurt, that have been torn apart because of our deceit. As we leave here, we know that we are not leaving alone. And that is because you promised to be with us. And Lord, in like fashion, I pray that all who call you Lord, Savior, and King, that they would stop crossing their fingers, that we would be truth-tellers and covenant-keepers. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.